Welcome back to Talking True Crime with me, Mark Williams-Thomas. Today's guest is a man that I've crossed paths with many times, but we haven't had the opportunity to sit down and talk. Dr. Daz is a consultant forensic psychiatrist. He's got first-hand experience of assessing patients in prison, secure accommodations, and across the courts in the UK. He's a fascinating individual who's got a real insight, and he can talk right from the coalface. But before we meet Dr. Daz, I want to discuss two cases – the controversial and very well-known misogynistic influencer, Andrew Tate. He's been charged in Romania with rape, human trafficking, and forming an organized crime group to sexually exploit women. Andrew Tate's brother, Tristian, and two others also face charges. The British papers have been filled with this over the last few uh, months, and now cases have been filed with the Bucharest court where the four defendants have been charged in relation to running an organized crime group in 2021 and the trafficking in Romania and other countries, including the UK and US. The charges relate to seven alleged victims who are named and alleged that they were recruited by the Tate brothers on the promises of love and marriage. The brothers deny all the charges. A judge in Romania now has 60 days to look at the case, look at the paperwork that's been presented before him and decide whether it's fit to go to trial. If that proceeds to trial, it could be many years away before the trial starts. Tate has lived in Romania since 2017. has been previously banned from many of the social media platforms. He's now reinstated again to Twitter. Tate claimed that the remaining prosecutors have no evidence and the alleged case is a conspiracy, a political conspiracy designed to silence him and his brother. They deny all the charges. This case still has a long way to run and he has huge amounts of support, even though he is a very misogynistic individual who's got very strong views. He is still supported by many people. Let's see where this ends up. My next case is a very sad one, and it was dominated by the news last week of a incident taking place in Nottingham. And in fact, as it unfolded, I was away, but I was following it. And what happened is it started off with a major incident being declared in Nottingham city centre. The internet, social media went wild. To try and understand what was going on, what we saw is photographs and videos of mem taken by members of the public of the emergency services there. What unfolded has shocked and saddened the community of Nottingham and has resulted in three people's lives being lost. University of Nottingham students Barnaby Weber and Grace O'Malley Kumar were fatally stabbed in Ilkinston Road just after four on Tuesday morning. And Ian Coates was found dead with a knife injuries in Magdala Road after his van was allegedly stolen. Valdo Colicane, who's changed his name and actually appeared in court under his name, Adam Mendez, has been charged with the murders of Barnaby Weber, Grace O'Malley, Kumar and Ian Coates. Colcane has been charged with attempting to murder other people, two pedestrians, Wayne Burkett, Marcian Garincia and Miller, and allegedly driving at Mr. Coates in the van. So there is a number of additional charges in relation to those three murder charges. He appeared at court with no fixed address, and he has now been adjourned to Nottingham Crown Court on the 25th of November. Nottingham Police have referred themselves to the Independent Police Conduct Authority because Prior to the incident in relation to the car, there was a police vehicle following that. The police vehicle then stopped when there was a, an incident with the person being hit and performed emergency first aid to assist that person. So we're now in a situation where that matter is now before court. So, of course, there is subjudice. But our thoughts remain with those families of the loved ones who have lost their lives, of course, with the injured people who are uh, receiving ongoing medical treatment and for the people of Nottingham. It's a shocking situation that unfolded very sadly. And I think sometimes what we forget is just how dangerous vehicles can be. And we've seen how dangerous vehicles have been used in terrorist attacks in recent years. So my thoughts remain with those people who were affected by the tragic events that took place in Nottingham. 
My guest today is an individual who I've passed or crossed paths with a number of times at different events. Uh, and every single time we cross paths, we say hello and we say, we should have a chat. We should sit down and have a chat. But with both very busy lives, we haven't managed to do that. That is until now. So our first chat is actually with you joining us on our podcast. I'm going to talk to some about the fascinating cases that we've both covered, but also in relation to specifically, specifically his work. He's got a fascinating YouTube channel called A Psycho for Sore Minds. So please do check it out after this podcast. He has extensive experience in looking at individuals, and it's the state of mind of individuals, looking at criminals with schizophrenia, PTSD, and personality disorders. He offers a valuable insight into his YouTube channel. He does two YouTube videos per week, and it's a, it's a really interesting, uh, very uh, thought-provoking chat that he has. So we're going to talk about some of that, and we're also going to talk about some of the cases that I've covered, but he's also covered as well, because he's got a wealth of knowledge dealing with the human mind. And one of the things that really fascinates members of the public, because the crime genre is huge, one of the areas that really fascinates members of the public is what is that thought process behind the individual that commits the crime? You know, nature, nurture, are they... Uh, do they develop this through their adolescent lives? Do they? Is it instilled in them at birth? So we're going to explore some of that. But please, whilst we're doing that, do drop us your questions. Ask Mark, use it in the hashtag, and let us know what you want to find out. So many people don't get this opportunity to speak right at the heart of an individual who's at the front line of speaking to these people. So Without further ado, let's get going. So brilliant to meet you. Thank you so much for coming on. And as we spoke briefly before we went live, we've crossed paths so many times. Yeah, absolutely, Mark. It's nice to finally speak to you face to face. Thank you so much for having me on. It's a pleasure. So tell, just give me an insight in terms of what life is like for you at the moment. What, what, are, you, what are you covering? What's the day-to-day -day work that you do? Sure. So I, I've got a few different uh, areas that I'm working on. So I'm doing my criminal court work, which is basically acting as an expert witness. So typically I would see somebody who's already been arrested uh, and is on remand in prison. So I'll either visit them in prison or since COVID, a lot of my assessments have been online. And basically what the court wants to know in my evidence is, does this person have a mental illness? Yes or no? If yep. they do, do they have symptoms at the time of their offence? Yes or no? And are they criminally responsible? That's that's ultimately what the judge wants to know the most. And I have to say the vast majority of cases that I assess, they are criminally responsible and they should uh, deservedly go to prison. There is a small proportion that I think are so mentally ill that they don't understand their actions and those right. are diverted to secure hospitals. So that's my criminal work. I do some civil court uh, work as well, which is not not as uh, gruesome and not as interesting. Um, and I'm also trying to break into the media. So I'm constantly doing you know podcast shows and, and various documentaries and recordings uh, for that kind of thing. And where does this come from? What what got you interested in working with the? I mean, I think as I the intro, people are fascinated by the human mind. Mind, people are fascinated by the crime genre. They watch programs and they get, you know, I want to know about the serial killer. I want to know about that that uh, you know, that murderer. What made them do that? What made you get into this field? So I think I've always had a bit of a fascination with criminality. Even when I was uh, a kid, you know, I used to listen to gangster rap. I used to love all those mob films, Goodfellas, Scarface. Oddly, my parents, even though my parents were very strict, they didn't, they had no qualms with me watching really violent films since I was a kid. Right. So I always had that kind of fascination as, a, as an observer, you know, and I never wanted to commit violence myself, but I was just drawn to violence, gangs, the mafia. Um, okay. And I suppose a lot of people are really, aren't they? That's why true crime is, is so popular. Mm -hmm. Then I did medicine, so um, psychiatrist at a doctor's first, and I have to say nothing really attracted me. I didn't click with any of my many subspecialties in medicine that I had to go through, you know, GP placement, surgery, all of that stuff, until I did psychiatry. And I think I was drawn into just stepping into the crazy delusional worlds that some people have that have like very severe mental illness mm. or helping them at their lowest step. So post-suicide would be a, a suicide attempt would be a typical presentation. So then I started training in psychiatry. And when you do that as a junior doctor, you go through all your uh, placements, usually six months at a time. And almost on a whim, I did a six month uh, stint in a medium secure unit in North London. And there were okay. um, 14 men on the ward 
at least half of whom had killed somebody in the past and they all had severe mental illnesses to have been sectioned to this unit in the first place. And to me, Mark, it was their backstories that really drew me in. So all of them have a reason uh, they have a story, whether that's, you know, physical or sexual abuse, being the victims of witnessing domestic violence between their parents, poverty, drug and alcohol use is, is a huge factor. So for me, that's what I liked about it. It was is piecing together the puzzle of why they got a mental illness and why they committed such horrific violence. And often it's the same kind of factors. You see, that's really interesting. I, I have stopped now. I did a tour for a year with my book. One of the questions, there's repeated questions get asked at the end of, of every talk. One of the things, question that I got, I think, asked almost every single time was, is it nature? Is it nurture? What is the influence of young people in terms of their social environment on their offending behavior? Now, I'm very clear is that the way you're brought up, what you're exposed to, you, you're kind of children of bank canvas, you know, you learn and you, you make a decision, of course you do, but actually influence of what's, what's around you, what's acceptable, what becomes that pattern of behavior really influences you. You, you alluded to seeing violence, the computer games, that whole image. Where do you think that sits in terms of how children are now living their lives? Sure. So the, the ultimate question, nature or nurture, I think most professionals would accept that it's a bit of both, right? So in terms of nature, so your natural instincts and your personality, there are things that lead to offending, lead to violence, like a, a natural lack of empathy, impulsivity, proneness to boredom, uh, you know, opportunism. So these kinds of people are more likely to, to offend, to commit violence. Um, but I would argue that that is interesting but it's not really that helpful in terms of, of treatment or rehabilitation rehabilitation because you can't change somebody's nature nurture on the other hand so the environments they grow up in is is far more malleable um, as a professional as society social services uh, and the vast majority of the cases i've seen have some of those things in their background so um, you know either having very very lax parenting so neglectful parents or overbearing strict parents who are actually borderline abusive so children that suffer from that violence at the hand of their hands of their parents they kind of repeat that cycle so they they drift yep. towards what's familiar and th there's there's more mechanisms to that there's also that they feel like this inferiority complex and they feel that every because my father used to beat my mother used to beat me every relationship in the future even subconsciously they feel that there has to be a power dynamic and i hated being the victim so i'd rather be the the aggressor in that situation so it's all kind right. of connected and what do you think about so so there was some time ago there was a piece of work that was done it was kind of inspired but it wasn't fully explored by the rspca in relation to making a correlation between violence against animals and and human violence you know when people go on and commit not just domestic violence but the, the murders have you ever looked at any of that are you aware of studies that looked at whether or not there is any correlation between uh you know violence against animals particularly as children grow up and then carrying on into adulthood against adult against humans sure so I've, I've not looked into it as in i've not studied the research uh, simply because it's my because my role is only really assessing each individual defendant um yeah. it's it's not really that that it's not specifically relevant to every one case that i take on Having Has said it, that, does it show in itself within the work that you've done? That they, yeah, they, yeah, yeah. I was, just, I was just about to right. say, I can think of many, many cases where, so when I get sent the um, the case papers for any individual who's on remand, one of the things I get sent is the um, PNC, the Police National Computer Record, their criminal record. And yeah. I would say it's, it's very common. Um, I'm trying to think off the top of my head. I'd say maybe... 15 to 25 percent of the cases that i've seen have some kind of offense against um animals in their history and i don't th I, I think it's a bit of a stretch to say that uh, that violence towards animals would lead to for an individual yep. to be violent against humans i don't think that's the case but i do think that people who naturally are impulsive and aggressive and basically lack empathy i think that's what we're talking about if you do, if you if you're the kind of person that has no qualms in kicking your cat or be beating your dog up because you know it was it was a present that you got and you thought that it would be this companion and you know you can't control it and it doesn't do exactly what you what you want so your way of dealing with that instead of trying to you know teach it manners or disciplines or tricks is to just lash out then you're also going to be the kind of person that does that with human interactions as well so i'm absolutely sure there is a correlation 
Now, I talked at the very beginning in relation to the ongoing case for uh, Andrew Tate and the misogyny mm. that exists around that. How does that show itself in perhaps some of the some of your people that you have to assess? And I'm talking particularly around male attitudes towards violence. Yeah, yeah. So actually, on um, as it happens, both of those cases that you've that you mentioned earlier, the Andrew Tate case and the Nottingham case, I, I happen to have done uh, videos on my on my YouTube channel, Psych for Sore Minds. Um, with the Andrew Tate case, by a weird coincidence, a quite a well-known private school that I'm not going to name actually asked me to give them a talk because even with their kind of privilege and, and their upper echelons of society that would go to their school, even in that scenario, there are a lot of young males who seem to be just um, quite attracted to Andrew Tate and mm -hmm. seem to support him. And I, for me as a psychiatrist, I'm fascinated to know why, what is that about? Yeah. And I think what it is, is that there is this, big sort of woke movement in society, which is relatively mm. recent. And, and yeah, and I think it's a good thing. I think that misogyny, sexism should be called out. But the side effect, the unfortunate side effect of that is that you get some core people, misogynistic, sexist men, young men especially, who feel that their privilege is being taken away. So because yeah. of this woke movement, they form an anti-woke movement. So they feel that Andrew Tate, I think, is like a symbol, is like an icon for their beliefs. And so that's one of the elements. I think also he comes across as legit. So he does have a rags to riches story. He grew up in abject poverty. He became quite successful, as I'm sure you know, as a, as a kickboxer. Um, mm. And the way he kind of, the image that he portrays is one yeah. of success. So young men, well, it's like a wet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So wealth, success from not having any particular skill or intelligence. Yeah. It's from being controversial. And that's like a wet dream for a young teenager to make millions of pounds by literally saying controversial and, uh, you know, uh, very hostile derogatory things and you get paid for it. So he's fed them this dream that you, if you support me, you can be like me. And I think that uh, people have believed it. Young men have believed it. And I think now, hopefully the tide will be turning because before people used to say, you know, he's saying it tongue in cheek and he doesn't mean half of what he's saying. And, you know, his, his bark is worse than his bite. But now with these, with these new charges, I think that people are going to have to actually question themselves. And I think, I mean, he's got a huge American following. Uh, in particular, he does have a, a large following in the UK, but it's a, and I think there is a, a, what do we need to do as society? I mean, look at Sarah Everard and look at some of the attitudes that male have. And I, and I have this big problem, you know, pornography as well, I think has, has released some of these, the, the standards and what's expected of young women in terms of sex, sexual you know, activity now and the borders and, and the respect of men to women. A lot of that seems to have been lost but of course that comes through parenting but it also comes from school and education and we seem to have lost some of those values that that enable male and females to have that that status that's respectful of each other yeah so i, I do wonder whether we've lost it as a society or whether it's always been there but we're just more aware of it now because before, for, for take the Me Too um, movement, for example, I think it's it's fair to say that what we've learned from that is that people and, and all the scandals with, um, you know, all these celebrities from Jimmy Savile to uh, to Ralph Harris. I think that indicated that it's, it's always been there. There's always been this pr these predatory males in all of society, in entertainment, people like Andrew Tate. But the difference is we're more aware of it now and we're more uh, mm -hmm. women victims are more kind of um, feel empowered to speak out about it. So I think that's that's one part of it. The other part of it, I think, is something you mentioned yourself with this increase in in really easy access to pornography, the especially on young, impressionable minds, there's a unrealistic and unhealthy expectation on how, well, both men and women, but especially women should behave sexually. And, yeah. you know, if you're in your 40s or 50s, if you've got kids, then you understand that it's a fancy and it's make-believe. But if you're impressionable, young, and this is your first kind of uh, access to what sex is, then it's 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 difficult to to differentiate between what is fantasy versus what's realistic. And do you think we see, I mean, I often talk in the early days, I used to do quite a lot of talks around the internet and, and, and accessibility of, of material on the internet. I think as as adults who have been around for some time now, you, ourselves, we see the differentiation, the separation between online and offline. But for the youth of today, I'm not sure they see that separation in the same manner. It's it's a it's there's, there's little transition between them both. They are that line is blurred, and actually, what's in real life and what's online 
are the same. And, and we've seen kind of such a massive rise in social media that actually the likes of, of Andrew Tate go back 10 years ago. One wouldn't have a platform. But secondly, they wouldn't be the people that we are aspiring to because role models have changed. Yeah, absolutely. So a couple of things that I'd say about that. Firstly, I completely agree. I think that, so I, I'm 44, right? I, I didn't grow up with social media. I understand that you don't have to use it, especially if you're working in the media and I understand the benefits of it. But I, to me, it doesn't feel like real life, you know? So, you know, I'll look on Twitter, for example, and it just seems to be people bitching and moaning about things and arguing with each other. I don't, I, I don't see that as the normal interactions that I'll have with people. But if I grew up with it, if, you know, if you grew up with it, if that was part of your kind of social structure, if being popular in school meant that you needed to have a social media presence and you need to post these photos, if that was part of what you're used to, if that's your makeup, then it becomes reality, you know? So mm. um, just kind of off the top of my head, I remember I was assessing a, a man recently who had schizoid personality disorder. So by definition, he was very aloof. He was very kind of odd. He didn't really have any real life friends. Um, he was kind of isolated and marginalized. And I was assessing him because he, he committed a, a sexual offensive grooming uh, on the internet. And when I was doing my psychiatric assessment, one of the things I was trying to understand is, is whether he was popular or not, because I wanted to make this potential right. diagnosis. And he told me he's got hundreds of friends. And then later on, it transpired that he had no real life friends that he actually saw on a regular basis, but he had, they were all online. But to him, he didn't understand why I couldn't understand the difference between those two things or the, the, the fact that they're the same thing. So that's, uh, that, that's something that I've definitely seen more in, as my career progresses. And the people that you're seeing, you're obviously seeing people who've got some, you know, some some psychiatric mental health issues. The, one of the massive problems, of course, prison service is the, the prison service is is not geared up to rehabilitation. You know, there's a punitive element, and actually, for many, sadly, the rehabilitation doesn't help. So you go into prison, and you are going to spend you know, most of your day in in your cell. There'll be very little rehabilitation, and particularly that you know, if you're on short sentences. How many are you seeing of your people that are actually dominating the criminal justice system with the mental health illness? Because it's not geared up to deal with that. But actually, are we seeing more and more people in jail who have mental health issues? Yeah, yeah. So it's it's really kind of complicated and nebulous area when you talk about mental health, uh, mental illness and you talk about violence because you can so you can you can have people like i work with in these secure units who have a clear mental illness that causes their offending right but they're a minority it's much more common for somebody to have to to be violent to be a criminal but also have a mental health issue in the background which is slightly different because then they still need treatment for their mental health issues but that's they don't have they don't have like a psychiatric defense for example um for those people the ones that are in prison absolutely even in my career so i've been a consultant forensic psychiatrist since 2014 but i've worked i did i worked exclusively with criminals since 2011 and even in that time i can see a, a marked change so to be specific a, a much greater proportion of prisoners have anxiety depression post-traumatic stress disorder potentially from um from abuse that they've suffered and the waiting list is just is just unfathomable you know sometimes it takes weeks for people who are really mentally ill just to see a psychiatrist let alone to get their medication mm -hmm. and start their treatment so that's one issue another issue is as you say the rehabilitation so first of all there's not enough resources secondly i've seen on, on several occasions where the, there's rehabilitation classes or sessions in the prison but the prisoners don't attend because there's not enough prison officers to even take them there so a lot of the time, the, not, not all prisons, but in some prisons, uh, the prison officers are struggling to tread water. There's not enough bodies on the floor to just make the place safe, let alone try and sort out things like the individual work or the rehabilitation or the, or the therapy for the individuals. That's another thing. I suppose finally, what I'd say is you can have all the rehabilitation in the world, but none of it really works unless that individual, unless that prisoner is really actually motivated. So unless they've had that internal epiphany that they yeah. want to to change the outcome of their lives, they don't want to spend their adult years in and out of prison, then it's never going to work. You do get prisoners, and I've seen this, who tick boxes and go along to the to the rehab because it helps their chances of parole at a later date. But I would say that only a small proportion actually genuinely engage and want to change. So I'm going to talk to you about the program respect. Thank you.
on YouTube who asked what is the reasoning if someone experienced terrible things to then go and repeat this behavior on others seems illogical to in inflict the, re uh, the real plain you've uh, experienced onto somebody else yeah yeah it's a great question so I suppose another way of thinking about that is why do some people who go through the same or very similar traumas react very differently to it and that's something that I absolutely have seen many times in my career I think the answer, my answer would be that it's about their natural personality traits. So some people can be the victim of abuse or can have um, really poor parents, you know, parents that are very neglectful or even abusive, and they want to do the exact opposite. So they have that insight and they, they say, you know, I had a crappy life and I don't want that for my kids. Whereas other people, and sometimes I think it's subconscious. I don't think it's, it's like a, I don't think they, they, they think, you know, my parents treated me horribly, therefore I, want to have a child and I want to treat that child horribly. I don't think that consciously happens. I think what happens is that they end up with uh, lots of negative cognition. So they feel worthless themselves. They feel because they've been, because they've been abused, they feel kind of angry at the world, but they don't fully, they can't process where that anger's come from. So it's something that just kind of sits in them. And they're the people that grow up lacking empathy and they're the people that can be quite violent. So you do that and you throw in some, some character traits like being impulsive, like not kind of planning for the future or caring about the consequence of your actions. You throw all that and then you add in other aspects like uh, drug and alcohol abuse uh, and just difficult family dynamics. Uh, and also, I think I mentioned this before, but I think people tend to subconsciously repeat patterns. So if you come from a calm, stable environment where if you've done something naughty, then your parents, you know, explain to you and what you've done and, and why it's wrong. And there's a fair kind of um, consequence, like a fair punishment, then you're more likely to repeat that. But if you come from an environment where you just get hit every time you do any, or you step out of line, or sometimes even when you don't step out of line, then you don't learn what justice really is you just learn to lash out whenever you feel agitated so i hope that answers the question i think it's i think it's not about the trauma it's not just about the trauma it's about the individual's way of processing that trauma and their own personality traits how much is a lack of empathy crucial to your assessments uh, it's it's one of the m most important things because Firstly, it helps with my diagnosis. So somebody who lacks empathy might have antisocial personality disorder. They might be a psychopath. I mean, that's quite rare, but, but it's certainly uh, something that I see in, in, with the people that I assess. Uh, it also helps in terms of trying to sort out their criminal culpability. So somebody who, who shows true general remorse and empathy is more likely to be sent for rehabilitation. And I say true because obviously anybody can say, I feel guilty. That's not. Yeah. And how do you, you do that? Show it so tell reactions. me, how do you do that? How do you show the differentiation from someone who says, I'm sorry, I did that to actually, I really am sorry. And I understand the impact. Yeah. Well, some of it has to do with their behavior immediately after the offense. So somebody who, you know, tries to run away, tries to cover their actions, or even you know, if it's, if it's a murder case, tries to hide the body is not somebody who has empathy or remorse or regret versus somebody right. who kind of lost their temp their temper in the moment and then immediately regrets their actions and, and tries to help with the investigation. So that'd be one sort of easy, e easy differentiating factor. And then I suppose just talking to having them explain why they did what they did. And that is often a slow ongoing process. And that's part of the, the psychology that they'll get either in prison or to a much higher standard in a, in a secure unit. Um, so just saying, I feel bad doesn't mean anything, but saying these are the reasons why I felt like this. So I lost my mm. temper in this set of circumstances because it reminded me of something that happened to me when I was younger, or, you know, I felt I had to lash out at this person because I was, I live in, you know, a, a, a gang, um, 
gang-ridden area of South London, for example, and I knew if I didn't do that, then this would be the consequence from my peers. So it's about getting them to really sort of drill down to their thought processes. And again, it's not just something they say once, it has to be done over and over again. And they have to explain to the therapist what they've learned, how they've learned it and what they would do differently. One of the things that we looked at when we did the investigation into Peter Sutcliffe was he was com- he was convicted and was considered to be uh, schizophrenic. Uh, subsequently, went to Broadmoor. When we looked at it with more recent times and more recent uh, knowledge around mental health, the view was that this was an individual who was operating on a on the level of normal capacity, and he was a psychopath, not schizophrenic. The differentiation between schizophrenia and psychopathy. And that whole process of how present psychopathy is, particularly within serial killers, just unpack that a little bit. Sure. Yeah, happy to. So I think the the term sort of schizo, psycho, um, psychotic all get thrown about and kind of conflated and mixed up. And then they're used as casual terms to mean anybody that's agitated is actually they're, they're very, very different. So schizophrenia is a psychotic illness, just like having if you have one seizure it doesn't mean you have epilepsy but if you have a recurrent if you have a tendency to have recurrent seizures that's epilepsy schizophrenia is a tendency to have psychotic episodes so not just one or not just a few but when you have them repeatedly psychotic episode is a break from reality so it's not your natural normal self which what psychopath is as i'll come to and that break from reality is usually in the form of psychotic symptoms like delusions or hallucinations so the patients that I see, the ones that commit violence, and I really want to make the point that the vast majority of people with mental illnesses don't commit violence. It just happens to be the ones that I see as a forensic psychiatrist that do. Mm. Uh, it's usually in the, t- in the forms of auditory hallucinations. So hearing voices, for example, command hallucinations telling you to attack somebody or to hurt yourself or delusions. So probably the most common that I see would be paranoid delusions. So people yeah. want to hurt you. Uh, the cameras are watching you. The FBI is chasing you. These are all common things that I hear. Uh, so people act out violently in um, uh, kind of proactively so that they don't get hurt themselves. So that's all schizophrenia. And that in theory can be treated with the right medications with antipsychotic medication. I say in theory, cause obviously there's lots of hurdles like side effects, like getting the dosage right, et cetera, et cetera. So that's schizophrenia. Psychopathy is completely different. Psychopathy is, a, is an extreme personality disorder. So schizophrenia is a mental illness. A personality disorder is ingrained. It's not a, a period of time where you're different from your normal self. It is part of you. It's when your natural tendency makes you a psychopath. And that would be some of the stuff I mentioned before, like being uh, impulsive, lacking empathy, um, not caring about right or wrong. But the difference is that's you're everything right, that I just mentioned. Yeah, you, you like it all the time, but you're also really manipulative, deceitful, and conning. So a true psychopath actually blends in really well to society. So a true psychopath, it's, it's hard to know that they're a psychopath because they can be actually quite charming. Um, right. And as I'm sure you know, psychopaths, they do uh, you do absolutely get them in, in violent offenders and there's an over-representation of them in prison, absolutely. But they also make really good CEOs and they also make really good surgeons and they make good first responders because they have this ability to keep calm under pressure. And in terms of being in the corporate world, they're willing to lie and to stab their colleagues in the back to keep getting their promotions and they don't, they don't care. You know, It's really funny because when I do my talk, I talk about the difference because I do Peter Sutcliffe and talk about the difference between psycho- as, um, schizophrenia and psychopathy. And one of the things I say is that you know, I'm just about to say something. You don't need to look at everybody next to you, but there will be people in this room who show signs of psychopathy and have elements of psychopathy within them and everyone looks around and go oh well, who's that then but of course there is and and in fact there's one of the other things that that often gets a terminology that's that's, that's very negative is narcissism yeah so do you want me to explain what narcissism yes, is do, please yeah <laughs> sure so narcissism so there's a, there's a huge overlap between antisocial personality disorder and psychopathy yeah And there's also a huge overlap between narcissism and psychopathy. So another way of saying that is all psychopaths are narcissistic to a degree, but not all narcissists are psychopaths. So a narcissist is a person who loves to be the center of attention, who craves praise and who can't take uh, any criticism. And they're also very sensitive to the, to the point of almost being paranoid. So something that you say, they will fester about it and they will try and decide that they, they just, they just want appraisal from every, approval, sorry, from everybody. So every conversation that they that they leave, even if it's a fairly 
bland, neutral conversation, they'll be thinking, does this person like me? Did he insult me there or did he compliment me there? So psychopaths have that tendency, but they have everything else that I said before. So they're also quite manipulative and deceitful and charming. Narcissists aren't necessarily those things. And of course, the challenge is, given that the way we describe narcissism and psychopathy and the way that 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 sits with so many elements of individuals that I know and, you know, and some of those aspects I can associate with myself. Where does that line then cross where you, where you have psychopathy as an individual, you are showing elements of narcissism, but then you commit a crime and you are (laughs) a killer. Are you calling yourself a, a narcissist or a psychopath? (laughs) <laughs> no, I think there's elements of narcissism and yeah. psychopathy that, that exist in all of us. You know, I often reflect, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, what, how, what, what are they saying about me? And, you know, I'm on telly. I, you know, I don't think you could say to anybody who has a public profile who yeah. doesn't enjoy that. I mean, I, I, you know, I, love, I love the work that I do. I enjoy being on telly. I enjoy that process of getting, solving a crime. I enjoy that element, you know, the highs and the lows within within the work that I do when I solve a case or when I find, you know, a new key piece of evidence that's going to unlock something. I yeah. find that incredibly, and, I, and I'm, I'm incredibly driven. You know, Every day I wake up and think, like, what am I going to do now? Um, and so some of that aspects, and I think by, and I'm incredibly calm. I mean, you could put me in whatever situation, the, the, the most bonkers situation, and I will see through everything that's going on, and I will, I will and I will resolve that situation or, or manage that situation. So I, that's for me is bread and butter. Whatever you put me in, I'd still deal with it. And there's people completely yeah. losing their heads around me. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, 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 so much I can say about all of that. Firstly, um, I think you could argue that almost everybody who's in media you know, front of camera who wants to make their own media profile, myself included, have a degree of narcissism. Because otherwise, why would you go through the trudge of such a competitive field to try and get attention? So that, that is an element of narcissism. You're right. And if that's in you, it's also in me. Um, the other thing I was thinking is, is that a lot of what you're describing is the same as me. I'm also very driven. I'm also getting up in the morning, wondering what I could do next. I'm also quite calm in these environments, uh, in, in scary sort of situations and environments. But your, your original question was, you know, where do you draw the line? And my answer would be this. I think having those having a feature of a disorder is not the same as having that disorder, right? So if we look at something easy to understand and basic like depression, everybody experiences times of low mood, but that doesn't mean you've got depression unless you have like, you know, the lack of energy, the, uh, the lack of motivation, an inability to enjoy other activities, then you're not clinically depressed by definition. So similarly, having some of the narcissistic traits or even some of the psychopathic traits are not diagnoses. Where it crosses the line is where it impacts your life and your relationship and other people, right? So if you've got sort of self-confidence and the self-drive to do well and, you know, to, to be on TV and, and to climb up the, the very, very long hierarchy of TV, I don't think that is that that's a trait of narcissism, but I don't think that's like a, a personality disorder. If, however, you were doing it to the degree that you were stabbing other people in the back. So yeah. I don't know, just off the top of my head, you have other colleagues that, that um, and I, I've actually experienced this. So yes. uh, I've been, I've been on the podcast of quite a relatively famous comedian who um, I wanted me on his podcast said he uh, in return said he'd help me out with a few other uh, connections that he'd make i traveled down to central london took about uh, almost a full day of my time to to uh, give material on my show and then he literally ghosted me afterwards not a, i'm sorry i know i said i do these things but i'm a bit too busy or i'm sorry i've had a look and i actually can't help you literally wouldn't reply to my emails um so i think that would be an example of a, of a psychopath i'm not saying he's got all the features but he's certainly closer to the threshold because he's manipulative you know he said he'd yeah. do all these things then doesn't do it. So, so I guess my point that I'm trying to make is it's not just having those features, but it's when it encroaches into the way you interact with other people. Again, talking about my, my tour that I do, one of the things that I'm, that dominates my tour is women. Uh, You know, I'd like to think it's because of, of me and who I am, but actually the reality is, is that when we did the investigator series, the radio times did a review and actually it showed that 80% of the viewers were women 
and I just find that very interesting. I, I haven't found a piece of work that's been done around why is it that women consume crime to the degree that they do. And, and in fact, you look at some of the really dangerous people in prison who have committed some of the worst possible crimes against women, yet women write to them, women declare their love to them, women want to visit them. What is it? Um, and I give an explanation, and, and I'll be interested to see whether your response is the same as mine. Why is it that women consume crime far, far more? I mean, the amount of women that come to my talk, and, and when the men are in the audience, it's normally because they've been dragged along by a partner. <laughs> yeah, Why yeah. do they consume it to the degree that they do? Yeah, it's a good question. Uh, I, I absolutely second that. So we we briefly talked about CrimeCon. I know you've been a guest on CrimeCon a couple of years ago, and I, I've done it um, several years, and it's the same. So the audience are overwhelmingly female. I'd say probably more than three quarters. Um, and it is it is quite baffling because men obviously commit far more violence. You know, the prison population, I think, is something like 85 to 90% male. Um, and I'm not fully sure, to be perfectly honest with you, Mark, my best guess is that firstly women i think are more naturally connected to their emotions so they're more more curious about thought processes that lead to uh, extreme situations like violence i think that's one thing i think another thing is that women are probably overall more fearful of being victims because women are victims of more crimes particularly certain types of crimes like sexual assaults obviously uh, domestic violence would be another one so i think that it's a combination of those things. It, it's it's a curiosity about the psychological makeup. And I think also everybody, most of us, I think all of us, I'd say have quite potentially dark thoughts, but we all have kind of social barriers or restrictions. So we don't, we don't act upon them. We don't, you know, hurt people that we might want to hurt like our bosses or ex-partners, whatever, even though we have the thoughts. I think women are more interested in learning about the people that don't have those barriers and that do kind of do the things that, that we would think, but we would never do. So I think it's a combination of all of those things. Um, just going back to something else that you said, Mark, which was um, to hybristophilia. I'm not sure if you've heard that term, but that's the psychiatric terminology for women who fall in love with dangerous men oh, like was it? no i've not heard that Hi, was it so it's a hybristophilia yeah hybristophilia so we psychiatrists we, we like to uh to sound cleverer than we are so we always uh, put yeah. latin terminology for things for no reason so hy hybristo comes from the greek word hubris and philia for, for attraction towards and there's definite I, I think i think it's quite hard to answer the question why these women fall in love with serial killers but i can answer the question what are the kind of contributory factors and one unfortunate truth is that most of these women themselves were uh, victims of some sort of domestic abuse or violence, mm. usually from ex-partners, sometimes from their own parents. And so I think these women drift towards what's familiar rather than what is logical. Uh, and I think I said this before about, about um, both men and women who are victims of violence when they're younger. So they kind of repeat these patterns, sometimes subconsciously, but there's a twist. And the twist is, if you're in love with a serial killer, especially a high profile one, you get to control and dominate the relationship because you control the parameters, you know where you're man is at all times you get to decide when you visit you get to decide what items right. you take into prison so it's almost like you're trying to gain control perhaps from the first time in your life so i think that's one element of it i think another element is this overly mothering instinct that is is there for everybody uh, arguably females more than males and arguably some individual females more than anybody else and it's like a savior complex and and who else is who who's who else is the best case example to try and save than a mass murderer? You know, if you're going to be the person that, that turns somebody around, then that's like the ultimate goal to, to aim for, right? And my final thing I'd say about this is that I do think there's a, a small proportion, I do think it's small, but it's, it's definitely there, of women who do it for the press attention. So you do get women who start relationships with very dangerous men and then very shortly they want a book deal or they want to do a documentary about them. And I don't think that's a coincidence. I think it's only a small proportion, but I think it's, it, it exists. Yeah, it's funny. I mean, when, I ask, when I'm asked that question about, you know, why is it so dominated by females, the, the thing that I, I often say in quite simplistic form is that I think the female mind is very different to the male mind. We, we tend to see things as black and white. We tend to see things as, as a solution very quickly and move on, whereas women will often contemplate, think about things, overanalyze it, uh, and want to fully understand and, and get in the head of, of the individual that it relates to. And I think yeah. as a result of that, they want to know more detail. And that might then feed into that aspect of why they you know, they communicate on the level. And, and I suppose 
when I think about it, sometimes I go back to those my very early policing days when I remember in uniform I'd go out and there'd be a domestic violence incident on a Saturday night or a Sunday and the the female partner had been assaulted um, and you'd, you'd separate them and she'd say, I don't want to make an allegation. And, and that would be a repetitiveness over and over. Mm. Of course, policing's now changed because there's a zero arrest policy in relation to domestic violence and you don't need a complainant to say, I'm going to make an allegation because rightfully so. They're in an environment where it's, we know it's incredibly difficult for women to, mm. you know, and men, of course, you know, who are in domestic violence situations to be able to talk and, and support that. So yeah. I think policing's made a huge progress in relation to that it's it, it is incredibly difficult but i do think women consume the crime genre at a level which is far exceeds uh, you know any kind of like thought process i think quite why and and, and I, it's always a struggle when you think to yourself what is it that somebody would want to communicate with somebody who is so utterly brutal and violent and horrible but yeah. It's not that it's not simple, is it? I suppose the answer is is sometimes we try to simplify things, and sometimes things are just quite complicated. Yeah, yeah, and not everything can be explained. So I suppose what you were just saying made me think about empathy. I think it's fair to say that women are naturally more empathetic than men, generally speaking. Mm. And I suppose if you stretch that, then empathy means that they've got more. The reason that they might, or one of the reasons that they consume more true crime, could be that they have empathy with the victims. But also maybe empathy with the perpetrator, not excusing their actions, but wanting, as, as you said before, to understand their thought processes. I think that's connected. It's curiosity, but it's also empathy. I just want to quick fire a few individuals to you and just give me you kind of like your thought, first thought, don't overthink it, just your first thoughts in terms of them as an individual. So you can either give it as a thought because you've done a bit of work around it or just a thought, you know, my observations as an individual, what they are. Okay, so we'll, we'll this is where you're going to expose how little I know about true crime. No, yeah, no, I'm it. just going to throw <laughs> some names at you just for a bit of fun. Let's just see what happens. Okay, go for it. Harold Shipman. Harold Shipman's really bizarre to me because I don't see what his diagnosis is. What he did absolutely was horrific and insane, but it doesn't fit into any diagnostic category. Don't think he's a psychopath. He's not antisocial, hasn't committed a lot of violence. My best speculation that he's got some sort of messiah complex where he likes being in control of the decision of whether to end somebody's life or not. But it's it's just it's very bizarre. I've, I've assessed hundreds of mentally disordered offenders and none of them, none of their thought processes make sense in Shipman's case to me. Ian Brady, Myra Hindley. Ian Brady, Myra Hindley. My thoughts are that they're both very, very damaged, disturbed individuals who have had horrific things happen to them in their own childhoods. Uh, individually, had they not met each other because of their own experiences, they are they are dangerous. But because they came together, it's so rare for two people like that to come together. It's almost like they gave permission from each other to act in their in their sort of antisocial, criminogenic, and murderous ways. So I think it kind of ramped it up. Would they have killed if they hadn't have met? I think uh, Ian Brady almost certainly would have. I'm not sure about... Yeah, I think they probably would, actually. Yeah, yeah, but probably not to the same degree. Fred and Rose West? Very similar, actually. Very, very similar. So I think they gave each other permission. You get the the feeling that Fred was kind of in charge and Rose was just... I mean, I'm not saying she's not culpable. I think she is culpable, but she just kind of went along with it and it just kept escalating to the point that it couldn't ever be uh, turned away. Uh Peter Sutcliffe? Peter Sutcliffe's a really interesting one for me because you mentioned this before, he had this diagnosis of schizophrenia and from what I know, the psychiatrist diagnosed him with that during his court case and then the judge over basically said, I'm not happy with that evidence, I want him re-diagnosed and then he got sent to prison. But if he got sent to, I know this is not a popular thing to say, but this is my clinical opinion, if he got sent to Broadmoor, I don't think he's mental. I don't think he was not schizophrenic during the time of the murders. Then suddenly schizophrenic later. I think he was schizophrenic the whole time, but it was unpalatable for any for him to, to for it to be seen that there was any excuses for his actions. So the judge kind of quashed the expert evidence so that he ended up going to prison. Ian Huntley. Ian Huntley is, I mean, I was about to say he's a vile person, but pretty much everybody mentions pretty vile. But um, just kind of the level of the manner in which he tried to hide his actions and fake concern is, is really stands out to me. You know, it's just a colossal lack of empathy or shame. And I don't know if you've followed any of the stuff about Levi Belfield. 
Levi Belfield, I know a bit about him. I know that he likes to provoke other people by lying that he's been involved in cases that he hasn't, which I think is a very bizarre thing to do. It almost feels like he wants this sense of power and control and the only way that he can lash out to the police or to society is by making these false claims. One of the things that I've always found very interesting, Peter Tobin, I did a lot of work on Peter Tobin and Angus Sinclair. And one of the things that... um, was always so sad that both of those died now both died from cancer in, in prison over the last year and then uh, two years ago was that they never gave up the rest of their victims they never gave up the um you know the locations of where on and who they murdered is that about power control is that about you know i just literally because nothing would have happened to them but they could have given some kind of closure yeah i think it is is similar to what we were saying about levi belfield i think it's just for whatever reason they've got this this vitriol this hatred trapped inside of them and there's very little ways that they can lash out i mean they can they can hurt an individual prisoner or prison guard but they can't lash out to society so one of the only ways they can do that is to withhold this information so it's all absolutely calculated and purposeful you know they know that they're upsetting so many people but they also know that there's no consequences to them doing that so what's the future for you what what are you focused on at the moment you've obviously got your youtube channel which is very successful and uh, but what is what is uh what drives you what gets you up in the morning what what do you want to do <laughs> so i think i'm pretty happy with my professional forensic psychiatry career i'm, I'm getting a, a decent amount of cases i don't particularly need more work <laughs> i can barely sort of juggle it all at the moment so for me it's, it's trying to break into the media which i've been doing for a few years now it's, a, it's an uphill slog as i'm sure you can attest to um so i've been doing lots of sound bites for documentaries but i would like bigger kind of platforms um i'd ideally like to present my own crime show um and i seem to have endless talks with producers about it but it just seems to be talk talk meeting meetings about meetings so hopefully something will come from all of that um i also would like to be in a space where i can react to new stories so you know Andrew Tate the Nottingham things that you talked about so I can give my own kind of psychoanalysis on daytime tv or on new stories so that's something I'm exploring but again there's a ladder that you have to get up and it's a it's a slippery yeah. slippery ladder well we should talk more we haven't we haven't had that opportunity to chat and Love to, uh, yeah. I, mean, I I think that there is a yeah there's a possibility to definitely see if we can do something together because I do think there's a correlation between you know, the types of, of work that's done and, and the, the human mind is fascinating and, and the public yeah. definitely are they do love to listen to to people and un- try to understand. Leave me with some thoughts in terms of the human mind. Uh, capable of doing anything? Um, yeah, yeah, I really think that. I know it's a bit of a cliche thing to say, but I, from my experience, so I've... I've assessed like literally hundreds, possibly more than a thousand uh, mentally disordered offenders. And some of them are exactly what you'd expect. So they are antisocial, young, angry men. And some of them, it's just come out of nowhere, you know, especially when they have something like a psychotic illness. So you have people that have not committed any particular serious violence. Then out of the blue, they do something really, really intense, like kill a child. So I don't want to leave with a kind of scary, pessimistic uh, comment for your viewers, but but that's the truth. Like with the right set of circumstances, anybody can do anything. That's what I have picked up from my career. So you've got a YouTube channel, A Psych for Sore Minds. You've also written a book. Tell us a little bit about the book. What, what uh, Where can people get it and what is it about? Sure. Well, I've been told uh, by my publishers that it's available in bookstores, but I've never seen it myself. <laughs> but you can definitely get it in Amazon. And it is basically my professional memoir. So I've picked the cases that I've personally worked with. I've anonymized them out of the doctor-patient confidentiality. Uh, but I've picked ones that are either really emotional or shocking or gruesome or just you know unusual or fascinating. And it's just about my journey of becoming a forensic psychiatrist. Uh, it's a little bit autobiographical, but not too much. It's mostly about the cases and what I've learned through all of them and it's roughly split into my time in in a, a psychiatric lot psychiatric units like broadmoor first then in prisons and then what i do now as an expert witness brilliant listen i could talk to you for hours just leave us on the thought process of perhaps choose me the biggest case that's probably had the biggest influence on you <clears throat> that i've dealt with myself hmm. yeah okay so um one that jumps to mind immediately is, is one that I talk about in my book um, quite early on. So she's a young girl called Yasmin. That's not her real name, but she was only 18 when I assessed her. And what she did was absolutely shocking. So she didn't have any kind of history of mental health problems or even of violence, never got in trouble with the police. She was you know, a good student. She was, in fact, she applied to medical school. 
And she became, she got schizoaffective disorder, I believe, and she became unwell very quickly within the space of a few weeks. And there were some warning signs, but not of violence. She acted bizarrely. She was listening to chanting music. She was um, wearing strange clothes and she, she was babysitting and she smothered and killed her nephew. And that was a case where it was clearly associated with delusional beliefs because she believed in her mind that her nephew had these demons inside and she believed that she could reincarnate him. Uh, so I assessed her in prison. I got her sectioned to a medium secure unit rather than a life sentence in prison, which is what the CPS wanted, which I believe at the time, and I still believe was the right call because she was mentally ill, even though she didn't have insight. She didn't cooperate for a long time. It took, it took 18 months um, just, just to get rid of her symptoms. And at that point, she finally believed what she'd done. So this entire time she didn't believe us when we said that her nephew was dead she, she still thought she could reincarnate him and then this kind of wave of shame and guilt and depression came over her so that was the the next part of her treatment plus i was part of the family therapy so i i, I sat um in a room with her and her brother on a weekly basis whilst they tried to repair this relationship so he was the father of the child that died and it's just heartbreaking the entire thing was really heartbreaking but also yeah. for, for me as a junior doctor at the time it was really educational because i got to learn to give evidence at the old bailey and, and construct a psychiatric defense gosh fascinating i mean and how long did that take uh so actually assessing her and getting the report out was a matter of weeks but rehabilitating her i believe she was in hospital for about three or four years uh mm. and then she's still supervised in the community very heavily and she still takes the medication and, and obviously she has to because the consequences if she were to stop could be potentially horrific gosh horrific isn't it listen i could talk to you for hours and uh uh we'll keep talking i'd love to do something sure. with you and i'm sure we yeah, can yeah, pull something too. together so thank you so much for your time Thank you as well, Mark. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for your interesting questions. Take care. Brilliant. Well, that was Dr. Soham Daz from the YouTube channel, A Psych for Sore Minds. And he's also got his own book, Two Minds, which you can get on Amazon. Do please go and buy it. A fascinating man. Actually, I'm now thinking to myself, why have I for so many, so many years just not sat down and talked to him? We've passed each other at so many conferences and he's been going to do a talk. I've been going to go and talk. But really good and, and the correlation between the kind of work that i do and the work that he does uh, is very similar um and it's fascinating when you talk to somebody of that degree who's got such practical frontline experience of dealing with the very people that i are involved in in a slightly different way because when i look at offenders when i do an investigation i very much look at the detail the evidence i follow the trail of the evidence it's much less for me about their state of mind. You know, it's about access and opportunity, much less about motivation. Whereas, of course, his role is very much about why is it they committed that crime? Because he sees them afterwards. Uh, what is it that would stop them from committing crimes in the future? Uh, what is it that needs to happen to them through the, the punitive or the restorative criminal justice system? Whereas, of course, my role is very much about catching them in the first place. So there's a real synergy that exists between those two and, and, a, and a great orator as well. He, he was fantastic in terms of relaying things. And one of the things that's always very key and obviously wants to, to, to do some more media work, but one of the key things is to simplify things. One of the things I always say is when I get a story, when I go make a program, is how can I tell that story, which can be quite complicated in a matter of if it's an hour on ITV, 47 minutes. So it's about distilling that, getting the key details out. And he did it very well when, when he explained psychopathy, schizophrenia, narcissism. You know, there's a really interesting element. And I was quite fascinated when he talked to me in relation to why women uh, communicate with criminals, offenders, particularly the really nasty ones in jail. So really nice to talk to to Sam. So please do check out his YouTube channel. He does two YouTubes a week uh, and do grab hold of his book, In Two Minds. I haven't read it yet, but I'm now going to go and order it. And uh, in the, my holiday at the end of, um, end of the summer, I'm going to sit down and take a couple of days to read it because I think it'll be quite fascinating to listen to him. So thank you. Thank you for joining us uh, on this week's. Next week, we have a different uh, case that we're going to talk about. Uh, next week, we're talking about, uh, well, talking with Professor Carl Chim, MBE, who's renowned historian, author and broadcaster. He's written numerous books, but we will be speaking to him specifically about Peaky Blinders, the real story. And many of you will know him 
from Peaky Blinders and the TV hit series and what is behind the gang's true history and what activities they were involved in. And of course, Peaky Blinders went viral. People were fascinated by that whole concept. So we're going to talk about it. And you never know, I might even dress up a little bit to be more appropriate to be covering such a story. So thank you for joining us this week. Thank you so much for our guest. And as I said earlier, our thoughts are with those people who lost their tragic life at the events in Nottingham. Please do take care, look after yourself. And in the meantime, do send us any ideas or thoughts you particularly like us to cover. And if we can, we will do it. Until next time, take care and look after yourself.